On that alone do we meditate, that alone do we worship, to that alone, the witness of the universe, do we bow. To that one who is our sole eternal support, the self-existent Lord, the raft to safety across the ocean of samsara, do we come for refuge. Om, peace, peace, peace. Good morning. Today our topic is right motivation or maybe right resolve. I couldn't decide. Somewhere between the two. I'd like to discuss the importance of motivation especially as it relates to spiritual life. It can make all the difference it seems to me. The same action can be motivated by different motives, and that can make a big difference. A right motivation or right resolve, it sounds maybe like a Buddhist topic. And in fact, the second step of Buddha's Eightfold Path is exactly that. Samyak Sankalpa, right resolve. Buddha says, And what is right resolve? Being resolved on renunciation, on freedom from ill will, on harmlessness. This is called right resolve. In Buddha's Eightfold Path, it follows Samyak Drishti, right view or right understanding. In the Buddhist context, right view means having a correct understanding of Buddha's Four Noble Truths, the truth that this world is uh, unsatisfactory, of nature of suffering, and that there's a cause to this suffering, there's an end to this suffering, and there, the, the way of the Eightfold Path is the way to the end of that suffering. So that's the Samyak Drishti. But we can also understand it in the Vedantic context as a right understanding of the nature of things. We understand from the teachings of Vedanta that true freedom, real peace and blessedness cannot be found by chasing after pleasure, wealth and fame, but only by transcending these. That worldly life for its own sake never brings lasting fulfillment. Only in spiritual realization do we gain true fulfillment. In the words of Swami Brahmananda, Look, if the body and mind are given to the world, the world destroys everything. But if given to God, he keeps everything, body and mind, in good condition. So if we understand the nature of things, naturally a resolve arises, a samyak sankalpa, a right resolve to lead a spiritual life 
to attain the spiritual realization, to break the bonds of limitation. And one's actions begin to be guided by this resolve, this resolve to overcome the lower nature and attain illumination. Buddha also tells of wrong resolve, asamyak sankalpa. What is wrong resolve, he asks, being resolved on sensuality, on ill will, on harmfulness. Just the opposite. This is clearly a state of tamas, a state of delusion, in which we do things, we resolve to do things which actually harm us. So it seems clear that this resolve to do something springs from our understanding or insight. Clear insight leads to helpful resolve and deluded insight leads to harmful resolve. If we reflect on what it is that motivates us to act, if we deeply reflect, it can be a little discouraging because we may find that most of the time, most people, including us, are motivated by unconscious drives and impulses. There are a lot of theories about human motivation. I'm not going to get into those. But just on reflection, we can understand there are unseen forces that were hiding deep within the mind that in many cases compel us to act. Basic biological impulses for food, shelter, and reproduction. Impulses for pleasure, wealth, power, and also avoiding pain and discomfort. We also have noble impulses. There are noble impulses arising, the affection and love we have for children, for family and friends. But on the most part, for the most part, they're all unconscious. They're coming up unconsciously, and they're relating to us, to ourselves. They are basically selfish. Perhaps it may even be going too far to say we are motivated by unconscious desires. It's just a matter of the samskaras, the tendencies lying deep within us that have been strengthened through repetition, perhaps over lifetimes, tendencies towards certain kinds of action. They're unconscious. And these samskaras give rise to various sankalpas. I shall eat this. I shall go there. I shall insult her. I shall buy that thing. Now I shall meditate for an hour. (laughs) In religious life, spiritual life and religious life, we find that mostly our actions, our prayers, our practices, they all revolve around me. Sri Krishna says in the Gita, and we've quoted this many times, Chatur vidha bhajante maam jana sukritino arjuna arato jignyasurarthaarthi jnani chabharatarshabha Four types of virtuous persons worship me, O Arjuna. The distressed, the seeker of knowledge, the seeker of enjoyment, and the wise. Sri Krishna does say they're all virtuous. 
And later he'll say they're all udara. They're all udara. They're all noble. All those who turn to the divine are noble. But he says the wise is the best one. The wise one Sri Krishna regards as his own self. Accepting the wise, we can see they're all basically seeking, self-seeking, seeking the self with a small s, not a capital S. Some are seeking enjoyment here or hereafter, some relief from distress, some for knowledge, spiritual knowledge perhaps, knowledge of God, but still knowledge that I want for me. Sri Ramakrishna gives the example of a poor peasant who is, gets an audience with the king, and the king is ready to grant a boon. Now, if you're a poor peasant and you get an audience with the king, just think how many peasants there are. One in a million probably gets an audience with the king. And so, he's, uh, what, what does he ask for? Oh, revered sir, give me some gourds and pumpkins. <laughs> he's ready to grant a million rupees or whatever he wants, but he, the, the peasant is only asking for gourds and pumpkins. So like that, all these, Sri Ramakrishna likens all these desires for things, seeking, turning to God for these kind of things is like going to a king and asking for gourds and pumpkins. It's, of course, natural, especially in the case of seeking for relief from distress to turn to God, pray for healing from illness and all that. But it's amazing to think of how Sri Ramakrishna couldn't pray for the healing of his cancer. He had a terrible throat cancer, but he couldn't pray to the mother for relieving that. Once he said, Mother, can you see I can't eat now? Could, maybe, could you arrange it in such a way that I can eat a little more? And the mother said, well, see, you're eating through so many mouths. And he was strongly encouraged by some of the devotees, look, sir, you can, you're a great yogi. If you put your mind on your throat, it will surely get cured. What? I have placed my mind for once and for all on the lotus feet of the Divine Mother of the Universe. Do you mean to say I should take my mind off of her and put it on this mere cage of clay? Now, the third kind of uh, seeker seek for, seeks for knowledge, for knowledge of God. Seekers of liberation. Sri Ramakrishna makes a very interesting bifurcation among the disciples and devotees who were coming to him at Dakshineshwar. He told to M, the devotees who come here may be divided into two groups. One group says, O oh God, give me liberation. Another group belonging to the inner circle doesn't talk that way. They are satisfied if they can know two things. First, who I am, and second, who they are, and what their relationship to me is. So it looks like here he's uh, this first group, and they are seekers of knowledge. They want liberation for themselves. But the second group, they fall into the category of the wise. Now the wise, they don't seek anything. They seek love for the sake of love alone. They worship God. Why? Just to worship, not to get anything, just to worship. I'm bringing this up, I'm taking this tack because I was really struck by one of the comments made by Peace Pilgrim. 
we had a talk on her some time ago. She said, I talk to groups studying the most advanced spiritual teachings. And we could probably consider Vedanta to be advanced spiritual teachings. We can consider ourselves in this camp. I talk to groups studying the most advanced spiritual teachings. And sometimes these people wonder why nothing is happening in their lives. Their motive is the attainment of inner peace for themselves, which, of course, is a selfish motive. You will not find it with this motive. The motive, if you are to find inner peace, must be an outgoing motive. Service, of course, service. Giving, not getting. Your motive must be good if your work is to have good effect. The secret of life is being of service. This was Peace Pilgrim's special emphasis, life of service. But it's, I think, a very keen insight she has. The attainment of inner peace for myself is basically a selfish motive. And that motive will prevent me from attaining peace. When we take up spiritual life, we strive to Uh, seek for the higher dimensions of our being, to experience the divine directly, we may feel we're not gaining what we expected. We, We expected some big transformation when we started our spiritual life, when we started taking up meditation. And okay, we get some peace and solace. We may have developed some inner strength. Our devotion is increasing. Our faith is stronger. But that transformation we were expecting maybe it hasn't come yet we haven't realized God yet we seem to be still more or less the same unillumined people that we were before and so I ask myself could one reason be that we're too interested in getting peace and joy for ourselves too much focused on ourselves which ends up strengthening our ego, strengthening the little self. Here I think we can distinguish between two kinds of seekers. There are seekers who feel intense longing for God. They seek to know God alone. They are not seeking peace for themselves. They are not thinking of others either. They are thinking of God alone. They are meditating on God alone, striving with every particle of their being to find God for the sake of God alone. They seek to love for the sake of God alone. They're like the disciple whose head was pushed underwater by the guru. And after uh, 30 seconds, the disciple is struggling like anything, thinking he's going to drown, struggling, dying for a breath of air. They're like that. And they do find God. They do find God when they have that kind of intense longing. Now, for the rest of us who don't have that kind of intensity, we may be seeking God. We are doing our practices sincerely, but but we don't have that all-consuming fire of longing, raging in the heart. Often we attach to our seeking also other desires. There were people who used to visit Sri Ramakrishna and they would bring him things but they would have all kinds of desires hidden in their minds while giving them to him, and he wouldn't be able to take them. He would say, uh, if they give one roll of beetle, 
They join with it sixteen desires. May I win the lawsuit in court. May I recover from my disease. May I make profit in my trade, and so on. Or maybe we feel we ought to get some psychic powers, some occult powers. Sri Ramakrishna he used to say, people of small intellect seek occult powers, powers to cure disease, win a lawsuit, walk on water, and such things. But the genuine devotees of God don't want anything except his lotus feet. It's difficult to resist because we hear, and especially in India, there's such a tradition of yogis with psychic powers. And many people even think if you don't have psychic powers, then you're not really spiritual. The real spiritual giants, the real sadhus, they will have psychic powers. And by their blessing, they can cure your illness or manifest some kind of, some kind of gold bracelet or whatever it may be. They have these psychic powers. Or they know what's, they know who's coming to lunch to, for lunch tomorrow before the people who are coming even know it. These kind of things. So it's a, hard to eradicate that desire completely. There's a character who plays a prominent role in the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna named Pratap Chandra Hazra. <laughs> and he is a very troublesome character. He often argued with Sri Ramakrishna, very dry and he considered himself actually to be at least on equal footing with Sri Ramakrishna, if not maybe a little bit more spiritual even than Sri Ramakrishna himself. Now he had a small debt. He had incurred a debt of a thousand rupees to build his house. But he wasn't working for it. He wasn't trying to pay it off. He was living at Dakshineshwar and doing his spiritual practices. And he would say, God gives not only pure devotion but also wealth. He has no lack of it. By attaining God, one obtains the eight occult powers as well. So he used to do lots of japa, but there were so many desires attached to it, so many desires. So he didn't make progress. He was just like row, rowing a boat across the river, but he, the anchor was still <laughs> set, still anchored to the bank. So there is a little bit of Hazra in most of us too, I fear. It is said, and I believe it also, that if one does spiritual practices harboring an intense desire in the mind, if one does a lot of japa, sincerely, intensely, harboring some desire, that desire may also be fulfilled. It's quite possible. This can bring about the fulfillment of desires. There's a sect of Buddhists that's uh, popular in Japan and also in this country. They do their chanting of a certain mantra for a specific desire. They'll want a new car, well, I'll chant for the car. So they're connecting it with the, their spiritual life. And they get the car also. But I don't know that they make that much spiritual progress. We, if we, if we, we may get our desires that way, but then we're just getting the gourds and pumpkins. So we have to look within and see if uh, our spiritual seeking is actually related only to us. The, even the idea of realizing God. Why do we want to realize God? Well, then all my troubles will be solved. I'll realize God. I'll be immersed in bliss, floating on the ocean of infinite bliss. I will solve the mystery of death. I won't have any more problems. I, I, I. I won't have problems. I'll be this, I'll be that. 
This is still the unripe eye. Jesus said, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Those who want to save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Let's go back to (coughs) Peace Pilgrim. She relates the case of an architect. I mentioned this before. She says, I knew a man who was a good architect. It was obviously his right work, but he was doing it with the wrong motive. His motive was to make a lot of money and keep ahead of the Joneses. He worked himself into an illness, and it was shortly after that that I met him. I got him to do little things for service. I talked to him about the joy of service, and I knew that after he had experienced this, he could never go back into really self-centered living. We corresponded a bit after that. A few years later, I hardly recognized him when I stopped in to see him. He was such a changed man, but... He was still an architect. He was drawing a plan, and he talked to me about it. You see, I'm designing it this way to fit into their budget, and then I'll set it on their plot of ground to make it look nice. His motive was to be of service to the people he drew plans for. He was a radiant and transformed person. I've met a few people who had to change their jobs in order to change their lives, but I've met many more people who merely had to change their motive to service in order to change their lives. So, I'd like to take the idea that we can apply this idea of motive for spiritual practice and apply it in our spiritual life. What if we were to practice meditation, not just for our own little peace, but for the peace of all beings? not just for our own illumination, but for the illumination of all beings, then it would be a kind of meditation as service. This is exactly what seekers are instructed to do in certain schools of Mahayana Buddhism. They are instructed before starting their meditation to cultivate and strengthen what they call bodhicitta, bodhicitta is defined as a spontaneous wish to attain buddhahood for the benefit of all sentient beings. It's cultivating the altruistic intention to become enlightened so that one may benefit all beings. Certain schools of Buddhism like Zen and Tibetan Buddhism especially emphasize this. They emphasize spending time to cultivate, for cultivating this motive, this motive, to cultivate this aspiration for enlightenment for the sake of all beings. And I'd like to read a little quote from the Dalai Lama, the head of the Tibetan Buddhist uh, school. He says, This is the procedure by which one develops an altruistic intention to become enlightened. Bodhicitta, the mind of enlightenment, endowed with the two aspirations, the aspiration to bring about others' welfare and the aspiration to bring about one's own enlightenment. And he gives an example how to 
practice this. Before sitting for a meditation, imagine that around you, spreading out around you, are all sentient beings. And then think that I am going to achieve the exalted physical, verbal, and mental qualities of enlightenment for the sake of bringing help and happiness to all sentient beings. Then they have a whole list of prayers which they recite uh, to strengthen this mood. It's interesting that Swami Vivekananda gives a strikingly similar instruction. He's giving the, the preliminary instructions in meditation, and he says, sit in a straight posture, and the first thing to do is to send a current of holy thought to all creation. Mentally repeat, let all beings be happy, let all beings be peaceful, let all beings be blissful. So do to the east, south, north, and west. The more you do that, the better you will feel yourself. You will find at last that the easiest way to make ourselves healthy is to see that others are healthy, and the easiest way to make ourselves happy is to see that others are happy. Closely related to this idea of bodhicitta is the ideal of the bodhisattva, The Bodhisattva is an illumined soul in Buddhism, an enlightened being who vows not to accept final liberation before all other, before anybody else, before any other being. So it's a vow taken, it's a, it's a vow taken consciously. I will not accept final liberation, be utterly merged in the infinite before, if there's anybody else who hasn't yet attained that. And many Buddhist practitioners also accept this ideal as their own ideal for their own lives. They accept the ideal of a bodhisattva, and they make bodhisattva vows. I remember for some time, before I, before I got completely caught by Vedanta, that I used to visit sometimes a Zen Buddhist meditation center in Los Angeles. And early morning meditation... They had maybe an hour and 20 minutes of meditation. And after that, all the assembled meditators would chant together these bodhisattva vows. And they used to chant together, Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Desires are inexhaustible. I vow to put an end to them. The dharmas are boundless. I vow to master them. The Buddha way is unsurpassable. I vow to attain it. Those are beautiful prayers they used to chant after their morning meditation. All together, they used to chant, Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Like that. Very spirited. So this kind of uh, accepting this kind of ideal, this kind of bodhisattva ideal, deflects or diverts the focus of the spiritual striving away from me and to the bigger picture, to all beings. We have such examples of the bodhisattva it's in the Vedantic tradition as well. 
In fact, Sri Ramakrishna used to say that there is no liberation for an incarnation of God. Swami Saradananda is writing, The incarnation is to have no liberation as ordinary people have. He was an executive officer who would have to rush to bring order wherever there was breach of peace in the vast empire of the Divine Mother. Sri Ramakrishna says, Sages like Narada and Shukadeva are eternally free. They are like a steamship, which not only crosses the ocean, but can carry big animals, even an elephant. Further, the soul that is eternally free is like the superintendent of an estate. After bringing one part of the state under control, he goes to another. So this sounds a lot like the idea of a bodhisattva who is not going to accept liberation because he or she has to come again and again for the sake of struggling, uh, bound human beings. And very interestingly, Sri Ramakrishna said about the members of his inner circle, those belonging to the inner circle will not attain liberation. These souls who came with Sri Ramakrishna as his inner circle, they were spiritual giants. They were already free. Many of them were eternally, he called many of them eternally free. So in the one sense, they are already liberated. And yet, he also says they will not attain liberation in the sense that they'll have to take bodies again and again. From time to time, these great souls come and take birth simply for the sake of others. And Swami Vivekananda, one of his very famous and beautiful quotes, it may be, he says, it may be that I shall find it good to get outside of my body, to cast it off like a disused garment, but I shall not cease to work. I shall inspire men everywhere until the world shall know that it is one with God. This is a bodhisattva, clearly. We know how Sri Ramakrishna trained Swamiji in this direction. This is Swamiji's own words. He was speaking with M on the 4th January 1886. Sri Ramakrishna was still alive, and he would be Narendranath talking with M, the recorder of the gospel. Yesterday I saw him, meaning the master, upstairs and told him about it. I said to him, all the others had their realization. Please give me something. All have succeeded. Shall I alone remain unsatisfied? He said, why don't you settle your family affairs and then come to me? You will get everything. What do you want? I replied, it is my desire to remain absorbed in samadhi continually for three or four days, only once in a while coming down to the sense plane to eat a little food. Thereupon he said, You are a small-minded person. There is a state higher even than that. All that exists art thou. It is you who sing that song. Settle your family affairs and then come to me. You will attain a state higher than samadhi. On another occasion, in response to a similar request, Sri Ramakrishna said to him, Shame on you. You are asking for such an insignificant thing. I thought that you would be like a big banyan tree and that thousands of people would rest in your shade. 
but now I see that you are seeking your own liberation. Thus scolded, it is said, Narendra shed profuse tears. We know that Swami Vivekananda did become such a banyan tree. Much later, he would speak of the ideal of sannyasa, which he so flawlessly embodied. And I'll read this passage, but I'm reading it with some hesitation, knowing full well how far from this ideal I myself remain. What is the reason that in spite of its faults, this noble institution of sannyasa stands yet supreme over all the other institutions of life? It is because the true sannyasins forego even their own liberation and live simply for doing good to the world. For the good of the many, for the happiness of the many, is the sannyasin born. Bahujana hitaya, bahujana sukhaya. The sannyasin verily is born into this world to lay down his life for others, to stop the bitter cries of men, to wipe the tears of the widow, to bring peace to the soul of the bereaved mother, to equip the ignorant masses for the struggle for existence, to accomplish the secular and spiritual well-being of all through the diffusion of spiritual teachings and to arouse the sleeping lion of Brahman in all by throwing in the light of knowledge. Our life is atmano mokshartham jagadhitayacha for the sake of our self-liberation as well as for the good of the world. So what are you sitting idle for? Arise, awake, wake up yourselves and awaken others. Achieve the consummation of human life before you pass off. Arise, awake, and stop not till the goal is reached. So this is Swami Vivekananda, a great banyan tree, a great steamship. And this is the ideal he presents to all of us. Atmanomokshartham jagadhitayacha. For one's own liberation and for the welfare of the world, the welfare of all beings. This is the motto of the Ramakrishna order. And Swami Paritushtananda in our retreat in New Windsor on uh, Saturday very rightly pointed out the value of this ideal. And he likened it to the two wings of a bird. If you've ever seen a bird with a broken wing, it's a most pathetic thing. The poor thing just hops about on the ground and tries to flap one wing, but it can't fly. So a focus only on Atmano Moksha can lead to selfishness and stagnation. A focus only on liberation, my own liberation, that can lead to selfishness and stagnation. He who seeks to save his life shall lose it. Whereas a focus only on Jagadhita, the welfare of the world, can easily become mere philanthropy and increase our pride and egotism. So we need both. It's very interesting how the Dalai Lama's words I quoted earlier synchronize with this. He talked about the two aspirations, the aspiration to bring about others' welfare and the aspiration to bring about one's own enlightenment. So this is uh, in perfect concourse with our ideal, Atmano Mokshartam Jagadhitayacha. This idea of affecting the welfare for the welfare of the world, for the welfare of others. How really can we bring about the welfare of others? I'd like to read a short quote from 
Swamiji from his teachings on karma yoga about a hierarchy of help. In considering the question of helping others, he says, we must always strive not to commit the mistake of thinking that physical help is the only help that can be given. It is not only the last, but the least, because it cannot bring about permanent satisfaction. The misery that I feel when I am hungry is satisfied by eating, but hunger returns. My misery can cease only when I am satisfied beyond all want. Then hunger will not make me miserable. No distress, no sorrow will be able to move me. So that help which tends to make us strong spiritually is the highest. Next to it comes intellectual help, and after that, physical help. So Swamiji emphasizes this hierarchy of help, that yes, we have to help if we there's a starving man, we, we have to give him food. Religion is no good for a hungry, for an empty stomach. But higher than that is intellectual help. And highest of all is spiritual help. Turning again to the teachings of Jesus. You are the light of the world, he says. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So what is this letting our light shine? It's the most touching the teaching. Swami Vivekananda says, First let us be gods and then help others to be gods. Be and make, let this be our motto. We may not be big gods yet, but we, we, we're little gods. We have some light. We do have some light. And I would say it is our responsibility as students of Vedanta to let our light shine, to put the principles we have accepted into practice. Swami Ashokananda wrote a very fascinating essay on the responsibility of students of Vedanta. He wrote it in 1931, and I'd like to read a little excerpt from that. He begins by noting how the world is becoming interconnected. This was in 1931. Already he's noting that there's becoming one world economy, all the different cultures and civilizations are becoming connected. And his uh, observations are only becoming all the more valid today. And yet, he also notes how the world is struggling to come to terms with this, struggling to find harmony, to understand how to get that all, being, all human beings can get along together. So then he says, Do the students of Vedanta realize that they have great responsibility on their shoulders? Vedanta stands above all for universality, oneness, synthesis, harmony, and infinite affirmation. Vedanta is a philosophy and religion of infinite hope. It promises infinite glory to humankind. It invites men to march forward from one achievement to another till the very highest is attained. It stands for the unity of humankind. All true students of Vedanta have to feel and realize this fact. They have, above all, to be all-inclusive and harmonious. 
By their life, they have to prove to the timid world the beauty of the new ideals towards which humanity is reaching. They have to demonstrate to others that these new ideals are infinitely more helpful than the older creedals and sectarian ideals. Do they feel that they are forerunners of the new age? Those who feel so will surely prove a valuable asset to humanity. None may know of them. They may be looked upon as ordinary, yet the high potency of their thought and life will bring about revolutionary changes in the mental plane of humanity and will eventually set forces in motion which will greatly alter also the outer life. The challenge of Vedanta is tremendous, he goes on. The weak may shrink from it, but those who have any strength in them will take it up and rise to the required heights. It is of these that Jesus said they were the salt of the earth. Let the best, and everyone has got the best in him or her, in us come out. Let the divine in us shine forth. Let the light in us be a beacon to the blundering world. So, Swami Ashokananda would go so far, I think, as to say that it is our responsibility to attain spiritual realization for the welfare of all beings. And he makes a nice point. He says, the high potency of their thought and life will bring about revolutionary changes in the mental plane of humanity. Just by thought, if enough people start thinking in a different way, the changes are affected. The evolution goes forward. Change is from subtle to gross. So we may ask, how do we strengthen our resolve to become such a beacon of light to the blundering world? I think it will be a great help to try to expand our hearts and learn to feel for others as much as we can. Feel for the suffering and misery of others. Sometimes it seems that the whole world is steeped in misery. And we often try to ignore it. We can push it off to a side of the mind and ignore it and feel all right. But Swami Vivekananda would say, don't ignore it. Rather, learn to feel for others. And the more we feel, the more also we shall know how to serve. After all, it's not actually someone else who is suffering because we are all connected. So someone suffering in Somalia is also a part of me. Perhaps all we can offer is a prayer, but a prayer uttered sincerely and intensely is not a small thing, not a small thing. Swami Vivekananda wrote to, he was encouraging his brother disciples and his disciples and all to learn how to feel, how to feel for others. He wrote to Swami Akhandananda. I'll read a few quotes from Swamiji's letters. To Swami Akhandananda, it is preferable to live on grass for the sake of doing good to others. You must give your body, mind, and speech to the welfare of the world. You have read, Matri Devo Bhava, Pitri Devo Bhava. Look upon your mothers as God, look upon your fathers as God. But I say, Taridra Devo Bhava, Murukha Devo Bhava. The poor, the illiterate, the ignorant, the afflicted, let these be your God. Know that service to these alone is the highest religion. Then he wrote in 1884 to the Maharaja of Mysore, who must have been 
an admirer of Swamiji, if not a disciple. My noble prince, this life is short, the vanities of the world are transient, but they alone live who live for others, the rest are more dead than alive. One such high, noble-minded and royal son of India as your highness can do much towards raising India on her feet again and thus leave a name to posterity which shall be worshipped. That the Lord may make your noble heart feel intensely for the suffering millions of India sunk in ignorance is the prayer of Vivekananda. And then I'd like to close with a famous letter Swamiji wrote to Sister Nivedita, part of which I think I read in the last lecture. He was writing to her from, on the 7th of June, 1896, from London. He addresses her as Miss Noble, so it means they had become, recently become acquainted. She was not yet Sister Nivedita. She was still Miss Margaret Noble. And in this letter, Swami Vivekananda calls upon all of us to be Buddhas, Buddhas with eternal love and pity. So I'll read out the letter and then we can take a few minutes of silence. Dear Miss Noble, my ideal indeed can be put into a few words and that is to preach unto mankind their divinity and how to make it manifest in every moment of life. This world is in chain of superstition. I pity the oppressed, whether man or woman, and I pity more the oppressors. One idea that I see clear as daylight is that misery is caused by ignorance and nothing else. Who will give the world light? Sacrifice in the past has been the law. It will be, alas, for ages to come. The earth's bravest and best will have to sacrifice themselves for the good of many, for the welfare of all. Buddhas by the hundred are necessary with eternal love and pity. Religions of the world have become lifeless mockeries. What the world wants is character. The world is in need of those whose life is one burning love, selfless. That love will make every word tell like thunderbolt. It is no superstition with you, I am sure. You have the making in you of a world mover, and others will also come. Bold words and bolder deeds are what we want. Awake, awake, great ones. The world is burning with misery. Can you sleep? Let us call and call till the sleeping gods awake, till the God within answers to the call. What more is in life? What greater work? The details come to me as I go. I never make plans. Plans grow and work themselves. I only say, awake, awake. May all blessings attend you forever. Yours affectionately, Vivekananda. Om Sarvastarat Durgani Sarvo Bhadrani Pashyatu Sarvasad Buddhimapno tu, Sarvasarvatranandatu, Durjana Sajano Bhuyad, Sajana Shanti Mapnuyad, Shanto Muchieta Bandhi Bhu, Muktaschanyan Vimochaye, Swastif Prajabhya Paripalayantam, 
न्यायेन मार्गेण महीं महीषा गो ब्राह्मणेभ्य शुभमस्तु नित्यं लोका समस्ता सुखिनो भवन्तु लोका समस्ता सुखिनो भवन्तु ओम शांति 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 May all be freed from dangers may all realize what is good may all be actuated by noble thoughts may all rejoice everywhere may the wicked become virtuous may the virtuous attain tranquility may the tranquil be free from bonds may the freed make others free may good be tied all people may the sovereign rule the earth following the righteous path may all beings ever attain what is good May the worlds be prosperous and happy. Om peace, peace, peace.